my name is Hannah Reeve. I'm the founder of Nature Nurtures, where we help social entrepreneurs, passionate teachers and early years practitioners to set up their own outdoor nurseries and projects for children around the UK. Here on the road that led us here, I interview pioneers in education about how they built their businesses and the journey that brought practitioners to their role in working with children. Joining me is Amy Sykes, whose journey has taken her from North Wales to Manchester to Morecambe and, as we will find out, lots of other places. Now firmly rooted in Morecambe, Amy runs The Secret Garden from her home, where she has created a nature-based setting that truly values every child's interests, ideas and natural pace of learning. Originally a journalist by trade, Amy was turned by forest school training, leading her to do a PGCE and eventually see the light by establishing herself as an Ofsted registered childminder. Being based in Morecambe means not only woodland wandering and nature reserve exploring, but also beach adventuring. And of course, excitingly, Morecambe has firmly placed itself on the map in terms of innovation with the University of Lancaster and the Eden Project, working with a variety of partners on the creation of the Morecambe Bay curriculum. Amy is a member of the Early Years and Primary Working Group for the creation of the Zind Disciplinary Approach to Play-Based Education, with the Morecambe Bay curriculum being hailed as the Great Reset in Education after COVID-19. This is something incredibly special, which will eventually see a multidisciplinary approach across health, community, education and business. What an incredible place to be in at such a pivotal moment in time, Amy. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for joining me to share your story. Now, we're going to get to Morecambe, but first, your journey starts in the world of journalism. So can you tell us about that and what led you to discover Forest School? Thanks for inviting me on, Hannah. It's lovely to speak to you. Being a journalist was my dream since childhood. I just loved writing stories and I was interested in people and their own stories and their own journeys. So that led me to a degree in English literature at Leeds Uni when I was 18 and I had a great time and from wrote for the uni paper and all that kind of thing. Went from there into working in uh, mostly arts magazines. So starting in Leeds and then that took me to Bath. And so I, w- I was in Bath, living in Bath and Bristol for a few years. Oh, lovely, lovely places. Yeah, they are. They are brilliant. And and I think as part of my degree, I had lived in Copenhagen for a year. I was very fortunate to be an Erasmus student. And I think living in Copenhagen, where the pace of life was just much slower than I was used to. And it was fantastic to be doing that um, at such a formative age. So I was 20 when I lived there for the year. And I came back to the UK and I think I just brought a lot of that kind of attitude with me and, and those I just relaxed a lot more. I lived in a house in Copenhagen. It was a family house and they had two young boys and one of them was about six and then another was a toddler. And they used to both go to an outdoor-based kindergarten which was the first I'd ever heard of that. It was completely new to me. I didn't know anyone who went to an outdoor-based kindergarten. It was about 2003. Ah, okay. Yeah, so so they would toddle up, you know, they'd come back in in their snowsuits. And what was interesting to me in particular was that the six-year-old didn't go to what I understood as school. He went to outdoor-based kindergarten and he was in his snowsuit all day having a fantastic multi-sensory playtime and that was the norm for them so at the time it didn't kind of turn me on to working with children but I was suddenly aware that there were different ways of children learning and different ways of children being in a setting than I had been used to going through the kind of UK school system myself yeah so because my parents are teachers they were both trained teachers and I have my grandparents were as well my brothers (laughs) 
and their partners are teachers. So it's really in the family. And it was in the blood. You could not deny it. It, it was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I managed to resist. But so, yeah, I felt like I'd been around education quite a lot in my life. And so, but that was quite new to me, seeing the, those two little boys in Copenhagen and their experience in their early years. From there, I went back to pursue my journalism career and, and had a fantastic time in my 20s working in arts journalism, living in Bristol, which was such a progressive city. I had the opportunity to be involved in things like a garden share scheme and be part of a community of people who really cared about the environment, which again, I hadn't come across such a fantastic, vibrant environmental kind of grassroots community before moving to Bristol. So that opened my eyes to a lot of things as well. And that's where I did my forest school training. So I completed it in 2011 and probably started it in 2010. Oh, that's such a good place to be doing it as well. Bristol's so forward thinking. I think it's uh, an amazing place to be. I think, uh, well, Bristol's well on the map, isn't it, in terms of innovation and especially community ground roots type projects and work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I was really fortunate because I'm from North Wales and so, you know, have family links, family friends in North Wales. And there is definitely a parallel between the educational ethos in Wales and the earliest foundation phase up to seven. And this progressive attitude, green, outdoor focused, nature loving attitude in the southwest as well. So I was fortunate that a lady who I'd actually worked for when I was a teenager in, in a cafe, she ran this cafe and she still lived in North Wales and she had changed careers and she was actually running forest schools in Wrexham in North Wales. She was working for the local authority, running forest school sessions for early years. We stayed in touch and I was loving my journalism career, but it was basically just a glorified office job. It sounded great on paper, sounded a very cool job and I was meeting some interesting people, but I was getting up and spending eight hours a day in an office and going home and, and wasn't really motivated by making money for shareholders and, and adver advertising revenue just kind of didn't make me leap out of bed in the mornings. So I spoke to this lady and, and I said, you know, I love the sound of what you're doing in Wrexham. It's forest school sounds brilliant. So she invited me to spend some time with her in Rex at the local Education Authority Forest School, which is unfortunately not there anymore, but I think made a great impact on educators in that area. And I just loved it. I thought, great, great. I've got to train in this. I've got to know more about it. And luckily, living in Bristol at the time, there were so many opportunities to do that. I was able to quite quickly get myself on a course and what I thought would be a hobby initially. I hadn't seen myself leaving my journalism career because it's something that I'd worked really hard for and I felt very fortunate to have the role that I had at the time. But as soon as I started doing my forest school and working with children in that environment, there was just absolutely no going back. I just loved it and, and I still do now. And I get so much joy from being with the children every day and being outside in nature. That was it for me. I, I knew that I had to go and pursue that as a full-time occupation. Wonderful. So from the glamorous world of arts and journalism, straight down into the dirt of forest. Oh, I love it. Absolutely <laughs> love it. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Where was the secret garden? Where was its beginnings? So I opened the setting in Manchester in 2016 as a childminder setting. In between finishing my forest school training in um, 2011 and 2016, I, I did a, a PGCE in uh, early years in North Wales and ended up in Manchester where I met my husband and I was teaching there. But from the point of doing my forest school training, I always knew that my dream was to open or work at, you know, work with other people in an outdoor focused nature centered setting for earliest children and families and I didn't know how I was going to get there 
but I just thought I'll try and meet as many people as I can. I will try and get as much training as I can. And that included the PGCE and as much experience as I can. So I was fortunate that the two schools that I worked in held outdoor learning in really high regard. And so I was outdoor learning lead at both those schools and I had opportunity to learn from some fantastic teachers along the way. And then in Manchester, I just found myself in the position finally to be able to open my own setting. And what did that look like in terms of finding yourself in that position? Was that financially? Was that just in terms of the point in time, in terms of your career? Initially, I had assumed that I would have to open a nursery just because that was the only model that I was familiar with. Or if I didn't open a nursery, I'd have to get a job at somebody else's outdoor nursery. And so that was a really daunting thought because I couldn't find any outdoor nurseries in the area at the time. And so I did think, oh, I might have to go go it alone. And the prospect of buying property or renting a property and having staff and all that kind of thing was quite overwhelming. So it seemed a long way away. I felt like I had a lot of work to do to build up the confidence and the knowledge and the skills to get to that point. And that was until was chatting to my brother-in-law who lived down in London at the time and his little girl was super happy at the setting that she was going and he was telling us about it and it turned out that she was a childminder and she was a childminder who had left teaching and she took the children out a lot and I thought oh that sounds very much like I would like to do but childminding had never ever been a path that I had considered I didn't know anything about what it was to be a childminder. I probably have to admit that I was probably under the misapprehension that childminders just babysit children because I, <laughs> because I had never looked into it. And I think, yeah. um, and now I can get quite cross, you know, when people think that there's a lot of misapprehension about the skills and the qualifications and the experience and everything that a childminder setting can give to children and families. I feel like the general public doesn't know about, don't really know why that is, but I have to admit I was one of those people until I started looking into it and I realised that it was the perfect model for me to be able to set up on my own from home without having extra funds really. So my husband and I were about to buy our first home together Having looked into a childminding registration with Ofsted and what that required, we were then able to look for a home that had the outdoor space and the indoor space, you know, in terms of the square metre space that I would need in order to open the setting that, you know, I really thought children and families deserved. Yeah, so I didn't have a pot of money lying there, but I really think discovering childminding, the door that opened to this whole world of the secret garden. And so now I'm always trying to, <laughs> to pass that on to people who, who say, oh, I would really love to open in a setting, but, you know, it just seems I don't think I can do it on my own and I don't have a big pot of money set aside. And I always say to them, just look into childminding because it will enable might enable you to do that. Exactly. I think childminders are very special people because ultimately it is enabling you to do things that you wouldn't have been able to do, as you're saying, financially. And also you're providing such a wonderful, pure, homely environment for children I think that's and that's something that no matter what kind of nursery you have they're always trying to bottle that and sell that but it is difficult it is difficult we see so many teachers leaving the profession I was actually speaking to someone at an event oh this is before global pandemic and he's somebody quite high up in education and I said to him about how whenever we have a role advertised at our kindergarten here in Worcester we have so many teachers applying he said to me oh 
we're getting we're losing all these highly skilled people going down into early years and de-skilling themselves. Um, actually, I think they're doing wonderful work, and I think these are people who are looking for autonomy and to reclaim education. I love that you put this forward in a very clear and simple way. This was where you were in your life. You're, so you, you have your husband, you're buying your first house together, but you're actually taking this risk. You are not only setting up with a new husband and buying a first home, you're also going to set up a business from it as well. So you're putting all of these things together. I guess you could look at it as quite a risky pursuit in that way because it's got a lot of things that have got to work. How did you tackle that in those early days of, of having the secret garden? Well, I think my family would have agreed with you and people were saying, oh, you know, they've always been absolutely so supportive, but they were also concerned that, of course, I was leaving a teaching job with a great pension and it was really secure and I got things like sickness pay <laughs> You know, there was a lot of security in teaching and I was actually quite stressed out as a teacher and and I knew that just because I have, you know, put a lot of pressure on myself to be the best that I can be for the children and the families that I work with and to that, all the pressure that a school environment puts on you as well beyond the children and families that you work with is a very heavy load. I just knew that it was the right thing for me to change my focus really and, you know, I still work in the teaching profession. I still consider it teaching, qualified teacher and I teach the children and, you know, we learn together. A few people who care about me did think, oh, this is a lot to do all at once. But I just didn't really see it that way. Just felt like the most right and natural thing in the world. And when I first met my husband, I, I told him that this was my dream. And so there were no surprises for him. He was like, what, you're going you're gonna to leave this teaching job? He was thoroughly supportive. And I do recognise as well that I am from quite a, a few generations of entrepreneurs in my family. Grandmother who ran elderly people's homes and also my parents who were both teacher trained But when I was a child, they bought a a dilapidated old house and did it open that also as an elderly people's care home. We lived there throughout my childhood and my dad continued to teach during that time as well. And I had two aunties who both opened their own nursery schools where they lived. So both of them lived on farms and their nursery schools are still going strong on those farms. And so it didn't feel risky to me opening the business because it just felt very familiar to do that. And while my family were maybe a bit wary that I was doing a lot at once, we'd just got married, we were buying a house, I was leaving this very secure job and starting a new business. I think they also understood why I was doing it because at one time or another they had done that themselves. It didn't feel like a risk to me at all. And maybe that's a good thing. So I just maybe I went into it a bit blind, but but it's, it's worked out. So. Well, nothing exciting ever came from not taking a risk. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of entrepreneurial spirit in you anyway, and genetically, by the sounds of it, which is wonderful. I think it's quite a unique situation that you find yourself on that level of support. That's really good. Because I was going to ask, how do you convince people to support you in taking these big steps into quitting a secure job and actually taking action because ideas are easy it's the next bit that's difficult yes well I think the people that I care about supporting me would ask all the right questions and I knew what those questions are going to be so I had the answers prepared (laughs) so you know I'd done my research I knew exactly what I was going to do how I was going to do it I'd drawn up my business plan I had sent out a survey to everybody I knew who had children and people that I only kind of half knew 
just asking them about what kind of service they would use. You know, of course, it was going to be a nature-focused, outdoor-based service, but what elements would make them choose one setting over another? And so that gave me confidence to take the step. And through that survey, I'd, I'd asked as well, you know, how much were people willing to pay for that kind of service? So I was able to explain to anybody who asked how I knew that I'd be able to make a living out of this. Super prepared super organized i love it business plan and place survey your market research also i think it's really good as part of a business plan to look at a childcare sufficiency assessment which is published annually by a local authority that will tell you exactly where the gaps exist in terms of the childcare market and identifying where for example new housing developments are because there's going to be a need for infrastructure in those places so you were well prepared with a good support network and also i like the way you phrased that the people that you cared about supporting you because there are the doubters and it's the wisest thing is choosing who to listen to because everybody's got advice right yes yeah i mean i just know that the people i have around me in terms of my family and my friends are very supportive very creative people and themselves take a lot of um, exciting risks in their lives that usually pay off and if they don't then they learn from those and bounce back in terms of the people who are close to me there were never any naysayers there were people of course who were maybe concerned like I said about me leaving a secure job and was this the right time and but once I was you know able to tell them that I had done this research and that I knew it was the right thing to do and that you can always go back to teaching, <laughs> which, you know, I hated it when people told me that because at the time I was like, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to show you, I am never going back to school. I'm going to show you, you know, maybe they said it <laughs> so that I would really show them. Yeah. You know, maybe they said, if we tell her this, yeah. then that's going to really put the fire in her belly. Absolutely. That gave you the determination to push forward with your dream. Fantastic. What were your aims financially? with this because okay you're leaving this job and you're taking on a mortgage as well there's a lot of pressure isn't there are you looking to replace this salary or are you looking to at least be able to make ends meet at first it was at least be able to make ends meet but I'd worked out how of course how much income there would there would be with the model that I was looking at um with just working alone and the ratios and in the first year that was probably my best year because I into financially because I just I was open almost all the hours I could be open <laughs> and when because I had this attitude of oh I've, you know I've got to be open all the time I've got to be what every yeah. I've got to be the setting that every parent needs me to be so that was 50 hours a week with the children and then I was made sure that I was open every school holidays so that I could take the three extra older children during the school holidays for those five days and I wouldn't say I didn't burn out but I, I soon realized after that first summer holidays that if this wasn't something I really needed to do then um, yeah. it, it wasn't the best thing for for me or actually for the early years children that I looked after because even though the older children that I've had with me have always been an absolute joy it has really changed the routine that has affected the younger children and so after that first summer holidays, I just had to, you know, I think I needed to do that to see, does this work? And realise that actually for me and my probably my own health, because I was just working so much, and, and for the younger children who are with me all year, that doesn't really work. And so that first year, I was very busy and it was probably my best year financially. I stepped that down. 
Yeah. So now I just have the three younger children and I'm open the four days a week. So I have one day where I do all of the admin and beyond a full working day, that extra day, I can always find there's so much to fit in. As long as I could make ends meet and I've always been able to do that. But because also I'd only been teaching, I'd only been in schools for three or four years. So I wasn't very kind of high up on the pay scale. I was still on the main teacher pay scale with a added bonus for being outdoor learning lead. And so I was quite happy with that income and, and my husband and I thought we're, we're quite happy here with this. It's great. And if I can do something that I enjoy a lot more and I'm less stressed out, then that is worth its weight in gold. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first three years of opening a business are the hardest. I think it's certainly for us. I just remember the pace, the pace of the first year in particular, because you really have to throw yourself into it and you're having to learn so much so quickly. I think I've said this before, but it's such a huge job that you don't quite appreciate perhaps at the beginning unless you've done it before. I don't come from a childcare background, so I hadn't worked in a nursery or anything like that. And when you are faced with, right, you've got to deal with parents. And then because we have a clinic, we had to deal with staff as well. It's, it's, it's huge, yeah. absolutely huge. You've got to hit that ground running. I mean, 50 hours a week in that first year. It's tremendous. Your weekends must have just been staying in bed and refueling I hope well, well one, that was the problem with because it was uh, 10 hours a day five days a week open to children so then one of the days of the weekend was work yeah. it was all the planning and the prep and the emails and the business side of things even though it's just me there were still receipts and and invoices and and all that to deal with so you know what I think being in teaching for those few years in a way set me up quite well for that because I, I was <laughs> I don't support this and it's definitely something that massively needs to be addressed but I was regularly working 60 hour weeks as a teacher mm. and so in a way that that mindset carried that mindset through but then thankfully because I was my own boss I was able to say actually this is too much and this is not benefiting anybody this is not helping the children that I'm working with throughout the year and I was able to allow myself to just take my foot off the gas and be much more mindful yeah, about how what I wanted the setting to feel like and also yeah. how I wanted my own life to feel and that I wanted to spend some time with my husband and not be so stressed out. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, I work a lot now, but I think, and I absolutely love it, but having that extra day, so it's a Monday, so I'm open eight till six, um, Tuesday to Friday. So having the Monday benefits the children and the families that I work with because I'm able to engage in other areas of the community for example I'm, I was able to set up the allotment site and I'm able to maintain that allotment I often go down on a Monday when I'm on my own and then the children benefit from that so having that extra day just slows my pace but there are a lot of good things that have come from that. That's about setting limits for yourself isn't it? it's really important having those boundaries in place with parents and for yourself, for your own well-being and respecting yourself because you can't compete. I mean, there are 24-7 nurseries now. Wow. We had a leaflet through our door a few weeks ago for a 24-7 nursery. In Britain? I thought you were going to it's, say it was, I, you know, it was abroad no, somewhere. <laughs> no, this is in our local town in Worcester. I find it really disturbing, to be honest. I find it really sad. I just think they're putting it forward as this wonderful problem solver for right now. And I think, wow, this is the time that parents 
if they're able to, should be spending time with their children. It was really heartbreaking. Anyway, so that's in the UK, yes. Wow. In Worcester. Yes, Ofsted are approving 24-7 nurseries for young children, babies as well. Right, back to you. (laughs) So you set this up in... Manchester. How long did were you able to run this in Manchester for oh, so, before moving? So, um, so I opened in November 2016, and we timed our move so a cohort of children who most of them would be starting school in September 2019. So we decided to wait and make sure that they could go to school. So you know, I really didn't want to disrupt them and leave Manchester sooner than that and have them have to settle in at a nursery for the last the kind of three or four months of their early years before mm. school. So so that was September 2019. We left Manchester and we loved it there. And we've got so many friends there still. It was just the pull of Morecambe. It was just too much to resist. So what was it about Morecambe then? Until I met my husband, he grew up in Lancashire. Um, he grew up in a place called Garstang, which is um, just about 15 minutes down the road from Morecambe. So I'd never visited Morecambe. I didn't know anything about it because being from North Wales, we just would go to Snowdonia and the North Wales coast. My husband and I would would come on day trips to Morecambe and it was the most beautiful place I had ever seen. The Morecambe sky is just mind-blowing and it's just vast. And I just fell in love with it. And I think he knew I would. And we actually didn't ever think about moving here because we thought living by the sea is something that is like a luxury. We just assumed it's a luxury we can't afford. Isn't this a lovely place to come for the day? And we got married in just down the road a few miles away in Lancaster and we had our wedding photos taken here in Morecambe um, because we just loved it so much. And we just thought, oh, it'll always have a place in our hearts and it'll be a place that we love to come and visit. And then one day we were visiting there's this fantastic festival that happens every September when there aren't lockdown restrictions in place. Called it's, yeah. it's called Vintage by the Sea. I'm just really into vintage and old-fashioned things. And so we would come and on the way home, we just decided to look on Right Move, you know, just like, oh, just to see what we couldn't have, you know. And, and we thought, we just realised, oh, my goodness, we could live in, we could, we could, this could be our life every day. And the, what the bonus was also that because my husband grew up not far away, my father-in-law is nearby and my husband's auntie is nearby. We always knew that we wanted to live closer to them. And it was just, we could move to Morecambe. We can live closer to my father-in-law and my husband's auntie. We could live by the sea and this could be our life. And so we just said, right, let's do it. And that was it. And of course, there was talk about Eden Project then. It was just talk. And now it's a lot more than that. But that sounded exciting. But it was just for the Bay. And when we came here, the people were lovely. They were just, everyone was just so friendly, which we were used to in Manchester. So we wouldn't have moved from Manchester unless it was a really, really special place. Manchester is just brilliant. Oh, wonderful. I love hearing your passion for Morecambe. <laughs> the, I think the, the tourist board would be thrilled. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not on their payroll, I promise. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just everyone should come. You're making me want to go, for sure. September 2019. So you had a term and then you had the autumn term, then you had a bit of the spring term and then lockdown and you got to Morecambe. So how on earth did you did you face this at the time so when we moved to Morecambe because the house we were initially going to buy fell through so 
we left Manchester and we didn't have a house. <laughs> we decided to, to go, through, go ahead with this Manchester sale, and, but we didn't have anywhere in Morecambe to live. So we stayed with my very kind father-in-law down the road from Morecambe. We stayed with him for a few months, which is actually so, so, so lovely to spend that time with him. And then while well, we looked for a new house and we finally, we moved into this house in December 2019. And it needed work doing to it. So just stuff that we needed to do, really. But it wasn't child ready. It wasn't childcare ready. Did the child minding aspect play a big part in you buying that particular property? Yeah, it was massive. We knew that we definitely needed an outbuilding. And I really wanted to be walking distance from the sea without having to cross any major roads. I mean, now I think about it, my, my husband is just fab, isn't he? Because, you know, I put all these stipulations in place for, well, not stipulations, but, you know, um, the, all these kind of tick boxes on, yeah. on my list for this business that, and, and these children that I didn't even know about and at the time might not even have been born. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and he was just, you know, two thumbs up and, and really supportive and, um, and really wanted it, it to happen as well. So the house had to have the potential we, we i knew we could do a bit of work and we could decorate it and everything ourselves and so we, we have an outbuilding um which we have plans to convert into a nature learning hub those plans have been through the local authority and so it was basically just waiting for a, a builder which then they just seem to be very hard to find at the moment yes yes <laughs> yeah and so and the outdoor learning space so the house has a surrounding garden it's a detached house but the front garden is really not suitable because it's on a slope and it slopes down onto a, a, a busy road so the back of the house needed to be suitable for the for children to be learning and just for there to be enough space so it was always in mind when we were looking for the right place and we found it so less than five minutes walk from the beach it's just down the hill Sounds idyllic, really wonderful. Bought this house, it's got work to do. Were you able to open before the lockdown came along? No, I wasn't. So at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, I was really frustrated that I wouldn't be able to open because I needed a job, basically. You know, I needed to work. So it was way pre-pandemic. The setting wasn't right. It wasn't ready to be opened. So I thought, right, I need to try and find some work locally so that I can then just something part-time so that I can focus on getting the setting up and running, decorating the house and advertising. And Because, you know, you don't just close a setting in one city and then the next week open a new setting somewhere else. It takes a lot of time to get the word out there and people want to come and visit. They're going to be leaving their, the most precious things in their lives with you all day. And of course, they want to get to know you and, and spend time in the setting and know that their child is going to be safe. And so I needed to get that right so that I could welcome families for look rounds and things like that. I was very fortunate to get just a part-time job in a local nursery school in Lancaster, which had the most fantastic outdoor area. And it was, it was really lovely. And the staff there were fab. And I worked there for a month and then we went into lockdown. <laughs> I was very fortunate in that I had been an employee. I think if I had been self-employed at that time, having had the break that I had had, from September the previous year when I'd closed the setting, then that would have been a financial hit. Um, mm. So I was actually really fortunate that that nursery had taken me on because I was furloughed. <laughs> and that's that when is. I used that time to get the setting up and running. <laughs> or, you know, get, get, it, get it ready. So, yeah. Fantastic. So the stars aligned somehow. That's good to hear a positive story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. And, you know, it, it, it's a terrible thing and I, I would never 
people have really struggled and mm. you know and continue to do so and so I just thank my lucky stars that I was able to get a job before it all happened yeah absolutely so I'd like to hear about the nature learning hub in your outbuilding tell me about that yeah so when the setting was running in Manchester um, we were really really fortunate that our street was such a sociable street and there were a lot of stay-at-home mums lots of different cultures so we were coming across people all the time in the park in the park we do a bit of planting we'd come across people walking their dogs and they'd be interested in what we're doing and the children would chat to them and i chat to them we built these fantastic community relationships you know people would say oh i wish i could join in and i'd say oh yeah that'd be great wouldn't it you know because I, I only offered this service to children we would have family parties and the families of the, the children that attended my setting and they'd happen a couple of times a year. We'd have these great celebrations and, and children's families would get involved. And this is it. Like, this is, it's not just a setting that cares for children. We're like a big family and we all benefit and we all learn from each other. The children are at the heart of it. Wider families and then the wider community. It was great for, for all of us. I just thought one day I would really love to be able to open this up somehow. I don't know how, I don't know what it will look like, but open this up for other members of the community to have these opportunities that the children are having, where they're having these magical moments in the natural world. They might see them as learning moments or they might just see them as experiences that help their mood or their health and well-being. There are other places doing that kind of thing and doing a great job. And I thought, you know, I would love to offer that as well. One day, if I can have a space that isn't inside my house, if it's like an outbuilding, then I might be able to have, have a space that while the children aren't attending the setting, other people will be able to benefit nature-focused learning experiences. They could be people who are older, people who are lonely. They could be Oh, single parents, they could be young people not in education or training. There's absolutely no boundaries. I don't have the skills or the experience to work with people who are older than primary age. Other people do, and I would really like to offer a space that I, I can work alongside those people and give them a space where they can practice with a focus on the natural world and people's health and well-being. And so that is the nature learning, what I hope the nature learning hub will be. But at the moment, it's just a very loose vision. And really what it will take is for the space to be there, me to meet those people and they will make it come to life. I can't dictate that. It depends who gets involved. <laughs> Amy, that's really exciting because grassroots projects and innovations are really exciting to us. People like you, the agents of change, people who need to be lifted up, they need to be raised up because the more people there are like you to have this vision and determination and passion for change, the better our communities will be, the better our society. It's never ending. But this is why the Morecambe Bay curriculum also excites me because it brings all of these interdisciplinary approaches together. And if we can find a way to make this intertwined way of working, it's so beneficial everyone. So I'm very excited to hear about that project. So when have you started trading again with the Secret Garden? September of last year, so September 2020, I opened again. So I had gone back to work at the nursery a few days a week from July once the nursery schools opened again. So I then had a couple of days a week where I was able to just get the setting really kind of spick and span, you know, and have visits from perspective families who were interested in coming and looking around 
and so that I would be ready in September to open. And as soon as I opened, I, I was full for the four days. Um, I had three children every day. Uh, I'm fortunate that a few of the families took a punt on me straight away and said, great, we'll have three days. <laughs> and and that, was just, that was just really, really lovely. Uh, September of last year, where were we now? So six months. How did you go about moving the setting with regards to Ofsted? Did you have to pause the registration and then reopen it or is it a whole new registration? No, it, it seems with Ofsted that, that your registration is carried by you as an individual. Uh, thankfully, I didn't have to go through the registration visit a second time because, right. I, to tell you the truth, I found that more taxing than my Ofsted inspection, which I so I had a lovely Ofsted inspection experience, but my initial registration visit, I just found it to be quite a um, negative um, experience. But they have to root out people who are not in it for the right reasons. And, and I really understand that. But that's, yeah, so, so, that's so interesting. Well, people I speak to and I know for us, it was the opposite. To be honest, I think it really depends on who you get. This is one of the issues with Ofsted, unfortunately. I do understand why it exists and I think, you know, it's there for the right reasons, but in practice it can be quite difficult. But I don't think it should put people off doing this. If you're doing it for the right reasons, you can do it and you can do it well. Absolutely. I think if you have, you know, confidence in your own practice and I mean, even I know a lot of people who have never worked in education before and are going into being a childminder. And that is, I mean, that is a tough gig because you've got to learn all about the EYFS. You've got to be able to deliver the EYFS. And all you've had is like six night classes from your local authority. And it's a lot to take on. And I really take my hat off to those people. And I know a lot of childminders who have gone through that and done it that way. And they are just absolutely fantastic and pillars of their community. And, and what a shame if they had been put off by the fear of Ofsted or the fear of the registration visit. I mean, I did feel that that's what the lady who did my registration visit was. Always, I almost felt like she was trying to put me off. But maybe that was just her way. I mean, I understand the book kind of stops with her. If, if she passes somebody... Yeah. Um, and then something awful happens, then, you know, I completely understand the um, the pressure of her role. And so, but I was quite glad not to go through a second registration visit. So I paused my Ofsted registration. Um, when I left Manchester, I, I'd let them know. And they were great and just said, phone us back again when you're open. Um, of course, I had to maintain everything. So you can pause your registration, but you have to maintain your insurance, your DBS, everything else you have to keep it going and also when I moved in with my father-in-law for just for that few months even though I wasn't operating a setting from that house never planned to he had to have a DBS check as somebody who was living with a childminder anybody that a childminder lives with while their registration is paused has to have a full and up-to-date DBS because you could just reopen your setting and an officer just needs to know who you're living with at all times. So that was quite sure. interesting. And maybe not everybody knows that. So since September 2020, you've been full? Yes, there are families who contact me and I unfortunately can't give them any, any space. And I can direct them to other fantastic nurseries and other fantastic childminders in the area who have a really great outdoor focus so I can direct them. But there is definitely a need for more nature-focused learning and childcare in this area. And so I would like to be able to welcome more children and hopefully the Nature Learning Hub, you know, that'll give me the extra floor space to be able to do that. And I'd love to take on an assistant, have a colleague that would enable me to do that. 
Is that something that you're looking into now, having an assistant? Yes, yeah. Mum has previously been registered as my assistant when I lived in Manchester, but she volunteered. Mm. So she was a really experienced early years teacher and she retired and she phoned me up one day and said, uh, maybe I could come and help you with the children. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> and, and, you know, because she'd just been so used to being so busy, you know. So it was a good hour, a good hour and a quarter drive for, for my mum who lived in North Wales. So she was travelling North, oh, wow. North Wales to Manchester. So my mum was registered with Ofsted and, and DBS checked and, uh, as my assistant. And so having her, she would come sporadically, maybe a couple of times a month. And it was fab because I was able to have her input and feedback on the setting because when you work alone, sometimes you're thinking, oh, can I be doing this a better way? Or is, is there a simpler way to be doing this, that or the other? And so it was fantastic to have my really experienced retired teacher mum to bounce those ideas off and give me that feedback. But also it enabled me to do things like have the fire, a forest school fire and things that I can't do on my own. Yeah, that was just fab. And it also gave me practice in just all the paperwork that comes with working with someone else, not as an employee. So, of course, there isn't payroll and that kind of thing, but just the paperwork for Ofsted. Yeah. And and also for the parents and getting permission and all that kind of thing. So got all that in place. So when I do have an assistant again, at least part of that of the paperwork that will be required, I've already got the templates for that now. With your dream for the Nature Learning Hub, will that see you continuing as a childminder or will you register that as something else? No, I see it as continuing as a childminder. You know, I don't feel like I need to change the registration. The space would not be big enough to work with more than one other person anyway. And it's not right to squeeze the children in. That does not promote the kind of day-to-day experience for the children that I want to offer them. At the most, it would be one other adult and three more potentially a few older children in the holidays but we'll see we'll see I don't know when you moved and you reopened did you put your prices up I put them down only a little bit so again I had to do the research the market research and have a look at what um, (laughs) local nurseries and childminders were charging I don't have a competitive mindset Um, so when I say you have to be competitive I only mean it in the sense that you have to be a setting that people can afford to come to and you have to be kind of on a par with everybody else so just a few pounds but it's in line with a lot of the other settings although I have to say it is on well I thought it was on the higher end to tell you the truth but then a few parents have come and visited and have been surprised and said they think it's low but hey it's fine <laughs> it's fine for me it's fine for the parents that I'm working with at the moment it's fine. It's one of those that you continuously review, isn't it? And certainly yeah. each year you need to review it. Again, the charcoal sufficiency assessment, if it's a really good one, put a comprehensive one put together by the local authority, it will have details in there about average fees as well. And they do split. I have seen, for example, we've been working on a project in Croydon. They have split childminder fees and PVI settings fees as well. So that's really interesting. Right. But that I think that's a really good point about when you're moving from one location to another, you must do that research and particular fees. It's not just a question of picking up and then continuing as you are, because you might find yourself in some difficulties there with trying to get children in. But yeah, it's one of those, keep looking at it, I think. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, from year to year, the world changes, as we've seen, you know, and yeah. the family circumstances change. So from the next financial year, I've spoken to parents about a food supplement. So I currently provide three meals a day, plus snacks and they're all home cooked and we the children and I 
enjoy cooking together and preparing the food and eating the food that we've harvested off the allotment. That's, that's a big part of the children's learning, but that's all been included in my daily price. And so rather than putting my prices up, I've asked parents if they wouldn't mind paying a small sup- daily supplement for food, but I've also given parents the option not to, because it's really, really important for me that the accessibility of nature-focused learning is open to everybody. It is not kind of means-tested, only available to the people who are able to afford it. Have they all said yes? Yeah, they there have. Because actually it is so small that I think it would cost <laughs> it would cost more to provide a packed lunch. It just contributes that, that little bit more. Well, food will be one of your biggest costs as well, won't it, I would imagine. Is it providing you with the income that you hoped and dreamed of? <laughs> um, it's fine. <laughs> We're able to do everything we wanted to do. And my husband and I have always had this, we've always said, you know, if you won the lottery and so you didn't have to work for financial reasons, how would you spend your day? And whatever our answer or feeling about that is, we think, well, that is what we need to try and start doing then because clearly that is what we want to do. And both of us are so fortunate that the way we spend our day is exactly what we would do if we didn't need to do it for money. I would spend my day working outdoors with children and families. If everything had already, if, you know, if my house was paid for and I didn't need to do it for the money, I would do it because I just love it. And my husband is the same with, with what he does. What, what have been your biggest challenges, would you say, with The Secret Garden? It's hard to think of that because I'm such a kind of positive thinker that they do happen and then I probably just put them out of my mind. So it's hard to kind of recall challenges. One of the biggest ones, and I think I realised this when I worked part-time at the nursery for that few months when we first moved to Morecambe, is not having colleagues. And that yeah. is something that I really, really look forward to in the future because I love the company of the children that I work with, but for 10 hours a day, so for 40 hours a week, I am two and three year old uh, it's just having that little bit of adult conversation or a little bit of adult input to something and also maybe just have you know someone else to put the kettle on <laughs> so, <laughs> might be nice but yeah so no more seriously it is just having that input of a colleague that I do mm. really really miss I really look forward to having that again in the future, just learning from from someone else day to day as well. Like you said, with your mum, having that person to bounce those ideas off and, and offer that feedback can yeah. be really, really helpful. Those days will come. And then, right, so things are going really well in Morecambe. You're full at the moment and it's giving you the living that, that you want to have. And you just so happen to be based in wonderful Morecambe where all of these exciting things are coming about we're hearing more and more the bells are ringing you're in the privileged position to be on the early years and primary working group with the Eden project that are part of the Morecambe Bay curriculum so what does that entail being on that working group well I joined the meetings at the beginning of last year at the beginning of 2020 so I knew it was something that I'd really like to be involved with because I knew that Eden project is an education charity and there was talk about it coming up here and I thought, wow, this is something that is really exciting. It's really what our community and our children and families need. I want to help make this happen in any way I can. So I just rolled up to a meeting and it, there was a presentation being given by Professor Robert Barrett, who's the uh, head of Eden Learning, and kind of swallowed my pride after the meeting and, and walked up to him and just said, I think what you're doing is amazing and it's really necessary and thank you so much. And 
he invited me to, he said, oh, great, what are you doing tomorrow? We're having a, a meeting for the working group. Would you like to join? Well, of course, I jumped at the chance. And before the COVID restrictions, we were able to meet monthly at the local college, Morecambe and uh, Lancaster College. So it, the people meeting are a collection of local primary school head teachers and practitioners, local education specialists and local early years practitioners. Um, some of them work in nurseries and I'm the only childminder and people from the local authority. And so we just met and talked about education, talked about learning and Robert Barrett would just t- tell us some amazing things about the ethos of the Eden Project. And so really he has steered this and there is a separate steering group and they are creating the Morecambe Bay curriculum. But my working group, the early years and primary working group is feeding into that and also not just feeding into the creation of that but trying to get other practitioners involved we have a early years pvi facebook group that we invite local practitioners to get involved with yeah just trying to get the word out and say that you know this is something that's actually being made by everybody and hopefully will be built out by everybody as well because it's going to benefit all the children in our community and families absolutely is this project an open project at the moment? For example, if there are people who are interested and who are listening to this and, and they're like, wow, this is really singing to me. I want to be part of this, but I'm not based in Morecambe. Is there a way for people to interact with this in some way? Currently, not that I'm aware of because it's a place-based curriculum. So it's about the people of Morecambe Bay, I should say, and their experiences of the Bay and their skills and their learning. And so... I think the hope is that this model and how this curriculum is put together be able to then be taken as a template and used in other places for those places to be able to create their own place-based curriculum. But even if they're on the coast, the Morecambe Bay curriculum wouldn't suit them because they have a different history and they have a different culture. The step-by-step of how this was created, and I'm sure the Eden Project have hopes that it will be able to be rolled out as a template across the world, really, um, because it really is about the education that our children and our our planet needs if we're going to have a future, basically. Um, I'm not being radical in saying that. That is actually what... Professor Robert Barrett is saying about the Morecambe Bay curriculum. So this is the curriculum that everybody everywhere should be teaching and what we should all be learning about where we live and and how to look after ourselves and how to look after the environment that we live in to be happy and healthy. So Very exciting. It's really exciting. I'm so looking forward to seeing how this all unfolds. I can see that it's definitely a national model, but then also there's there's international interest as well. I don't think it's radical either, because I think a lot of people have been talking about this and banging on about this for years. It's just taking these organisations and partners to, to work on this together to make this actually into something that will work. There are similar projects in the UK, but it's an exciting time to be in early years in education, ultimately. And I think you're so lucky to be based in amongst all of this and to be part of it. So exciting. Absolutely. And what I have absolutely loved is that it goes beyond sharing practice. I mean, the partners that are involved in in this, and it's not just 
local educators, but community groups and so many different people feeding into this. And it is open to everybody in the area to feed into it because it's for them and it's for their families and it's for their future. Just this kind of synergy of everybody working together um, it's just really, really magical and, and inspiring and such a wonderful thing to be part of. And I really do hope, well, I do really hope it's successful, but then I hope it's successful to the point that other areas want to create their own version because, because it is so exciting. And I want this for everybody, you know. Yeah. I think it's the future of learning. I really do. Um, I know Millie does as well from Millie's Garden. She's talked excitedly about this as well. It's just come into my head. It's big picture learning. That's right. That came out of the States. That's over in Doncaster at the moment. And they're looking at setting up other sort of hubs for that. And that's got lots of community-based, place-based stuff in it. I don't think it's got the nature aspect, but it's got some strong, exciting values. And it sits very much in secondary. I think it's got a limited scope, whereas this is so overarching. Zero to 25, isn't it? It's wonderful. What would you say to people who are thinking about setting something like the secret garden up? Hey, I would say if if it excites you, find a way to do it. And I would also say never feel alone in it because there is so much support out there and you just need to, you know, start scratching the surface of this sector really. And it can feel daunting if you've not started a business before and you don't know anybody who has done something like this but if you start to scratch the surface of the sector there are so many people who really want this for children that they will want to help you to make it happen you know and that's oh, from social media to local childminders groups I'm so fortunate here that we have a local childminders Facebook group Bay Childminders and we just share tips share advice if somebody has a bit of a worry or a concern they will voice it on the group um, and it's just so positive so that's what the main thing I would say you won't be necessarily doing it alone there's so much support out there for people to help you make that a reality wonderful Amy, I wish you every success in the future. It's an exciting time to be in the sector, as we've said. I think the niche that you sit in is unique, but also at a point where it's really blooming because people are looking for this. They need it and they should have it. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Looking forward to hearing how your next few years go. You're very welcome. Thanks very much, Anna. Lovely to speak to you. <laughs>